0: Reading the Globe. Reading the Globe summarizes, synthesizes, and criticizes the week's most important and fascinating stories. Here's your host, Michael Washburn. July 15, 2021. The European Union is pushing hard to gain the legal clearances necessary to slap sanctions on Lebanon's ruling elite. Lebanon is in a state of crisis following the explosion at a Beirut port last August that killed more than 200 people. As a Reuters article reported on Monday, the country is on the verge of financial ruin and daily life is a nightmare with rampant blackouts and shortages of food and fuel. The EU's leaders intend the sanctions, which look set to go into effect by the end of this month, to put pressure on Lebanese politicians to get their act together and lift the nation out of crisis. The Reuters article cites an unattributed diplomatic note listing corruption, human rights abuses, and the failure to form a new government as triggers that would incur travel bans and freezes of the assets of Lebanese officials. European politicians are quick to criticize the political class of a small, non-EU country for failures of responsibility and leadership at a time of crisis. The emergency in Lebanon is real enough But the sanctimony on display here does raise questions, to wit, have European leaders in recent years done even the minimum that one might expect to protect their citizens from social disorder, as bad as or worse than what is going on now in Lebanon? Some of us still remember the horror of the Paris riots of October and November 2005, in which mobs of rioters beat to death 56-year-old Jean-Claude Irvois and caused fatal injuries to 61-year-old Jean-Jacques Le Chénadec. A 34-year-old French-Algerian man, Salah Gehem, died from smoke inhalation after trying to put out fires caused by the riders. Thousands of vehicles burned and dozens of firemen sustained injuries. Seldom in the new millennium has civil order broken down so horrifically or police and municipal authorities failed more egregiously in their duties. More recently, the police response to the gilets Jaunes riots of December 2018 may have been somewhat more adequate, but still largely failed to quell in a timely manner one of the severest disruptions of civic life in the modern history of France. Incidentally, France is leading the pack of EU nations pushing for sanctions against Lebanon's politicians. The crisis in Lebanon does indeed call for swift concerted action. But the French might find here an opportunity to reflect on their own government's lack of moral strength in the face of mass disturbances that have endangered the working people of Paris. Right after the Dutch author and crime reporter Peter De Vries left a TV studio in Amsterdam on July 6, an attacker opened fire on a busy street, hitting De Vries in the head. Police swiftly made three arrests, but then released one detainee. The motives of the other two suspected in the brazen attack have not yet come to light, though speculation abounds. The 64-year-old DeVries has become what so many others in the journalistic profession rarely dare to try to be, a writer producing articles and commentary important and influential enough for certain people to want him dead. After more than four decades of work as a highly respected crime reporter, known especially for his coverage of the kidnapping of beer magnate Freddie Heineken in 1983 and the disappearance of Natalie Holloway in Aruba in 2005, there are few people in Holland who do not know of De Vries and his bold investigative reporting. De Vries has gone far beyond the role of the reporter as conventionally understood and has made himself a player in the high-profile cases, including some that he has covered. At the time of the shooting, De Vries was acting as an advisor to a prosecution witness in the so-called Marengo process, the trial of members of a Dutch-Moroccan mafia organization. But De Vries is even more widely known for having helped obtain incriminating statements from Joran Sloot about what happened to Natalie Holloway in Aruba in 2005. Lisa Pulitzer and Cole Thompson's book, Portrait of a Monster, details how De Vries encouraged a young man named Patrick van der Eem. To gain the trust of Joran Vanderslit over weeks and months, and then help with the logistics of rigging a car with hidden microphones in preparation for a conversation with Vanderslit. In the course of that exchange, Vanderslit, thinking he was speaking to a good buddy in total confidence, told Vander about how Holloway supposedly had a seizure during the romantic encounter on the beach in Aruba, and Vanderslit then panicked. Instead of calling emergency services, he summoned a friend with a small boat to help dispose of Holloway's body at sea. After so many years of frustration in the Holloway investigation, this taped conversation, with its blunt admission of a role that the police had failed over many months to extract, shocked the world. The Aruban authorities had been stumped for so long. Holloway's family was crying for justice. People did not examine too closely the ethics of having someone pretend to be a friend partying and snorting cocaine in front of Vanderslit in order to coax incriminating statements from him. Peter DeVries has not exactly shunned the spotlight or gone out of his way to respect the privacy of the accused. For all the flamboyance of his persona and his tendency to edge into other realms of public activity, DeVries is, at bottom, a journalist writing truths some people don't want aired. Update. Dutch crime reporter Peter R. De Vries, who was shot and seriously wounded in central Amsterdam on July 6, 2021, died from his wounds on Thursday, July 15. He was 64. In the race to vaccinate as many people as possible against COVID-19, few countries have a more admirable record than Portugal. A July 3 report in the Portugal News, the English-language newspaper of Portugal, indicates that by the first week of July, the Directorate General of Health had released figures showing that 5,335,683 Portuguese had received at least one dose of the vaccine and 3,295,132 had gotten full vaccinations. Among the most vulnerable segments of the population— 666,831 people over 80 years old, a full 98% of men and women in that age bracket, had gotten at least one dose, and 634,488, or 93%, were fully vaccinated. Given the country's success in vaccinating millions of people, the front-page story in the same edition of the Portugal News contains some rather jarring news about the hasty forcing of new rules on UK citizens visiting Portugal. On June 27, the government in Lisbon decreed that starting the very next day, people traveling from the UK to Portugal who had not undergone vaccination would have to submit to 14 days of quarantine. That may seem to some like a sensible precaution, but unclear and inconsistent stipulations compounded the abruptness of its announcement. Initially, the government said that children under the age of 12 would not have to have had a full vaccination to avoid the quarantine, but the rule did apply to those aged 13 to 18. But UK children up to 18 have had little or no chance to receive vaccinations. Within 48 hours of this announcement, Portugal's government rolled out some highly confusing new guidance on the Visit Portugal website. It appeared to exempt kids up to 18 years of age if accompanying adults had proof of complete vaccination, but it gave mixed signals stating, children under 12 years old are exempt of testing requirements. Young people from 12 to 18 years old must comply with testing requirements. The suddenness of the announcements and the hazy, inconsistent nature of the patchwork of rules and requirements wreaked havoc for UK travelers especially those with families, including kids of different ages. Some may have abruptly decided to cancel their plans to visit Portugal at all, even after having bought tickets and having looked forward to a vacation in a beautiful, charming country with a fascinating history and culture. When these announcements came out, Lisbon itself was already chafing under some of the strictest COVID measures ever put in place, with cafes, bars, and restaurants required to close no later than 11 p.m. on weeknights and 3.30 p.m. on weekends. COVID-19 is, of course, a public health issue. Some may wonder why the issue of COVID restrictions has grown so politicized. The issue has things in common with the furor around cancel culture. Just as having a woke sensibility these days increasingly gives people with a conspicuous lack of intellectual or creative talent a club with which to bully others and to decide what speech is permissible and what people will read and listen to, the singular ineptitude of COVID guidance in certain parts of the world reminds us that people with no discernible aptitude for other vocations can always become bureaucrats and use the power of the state to push others around. Written and read by Michael Washburn for Audio Hopper. Audio Hopper.